today we're going to be continuing with James 4, and we'll be continuing in a lot of common themes that James, James has presented to us. If you remember James 1, um, there are a lot of key concepts that James introduced to us. Well, we'll dig into them in more detail today um, as we read through James 4. So please turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 4 and keep your finger or thumb on James chapter 1 as well, because these two chapters really fold into each other. And I'll be referring to James chapter 1 a lot as we go through James chapter 4. If you remember who James was, he was one of the first bishops of the Church of Jerusalem. So now as a converted believer who at first did not believe that his brother was the Christ, but later on came to be saved and to actually lead the church at Jerusalem. James is preaching in a time where the Jewish people and especially Jewish believers have been scattered abroad. And he writes his epistle to all of those believers that are scattered abroad. James is a Jew of Jews, right? He knows all of the background of the wisdom literature. He relies heavily upon wisdom literature <laughs> and the teachings of Jesus. So a lot, of, a lot of the things that we see in the book of James are primarily based on those, those two sources, very emphatically based on those two sources. And if you can imagine the, the situation of the church of James' day, uh, it was first century. Wow, what a time to be a Christian, right? What, a, what an oppressive government to sit under as a Christian. You can't get much more oppressive than Rome, right? That's where James is. And even in that, there are these roots of the gospel taking hold in various places. And the, the believers being scattered abroad are bringing that gospel to really uh, the ends of the earth. So let's read our passage for today. James 4, 1 through 10. And then we'll go back and we'll outline and go through each of these sections and spend a little bit more time dissecting them. So James 4, 1 through 3 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, 
so that you may spend what you request on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? But while he but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So as usual, James packs a punch in just 10 verses. And there's so much of practical daily living out our faith that he puts in every one of the chapters of this epistle. This one's no different. So if you look at James 1 in the background that I mentioned, in James 1, he introduced at least four concepts that are repeated inside of these first 10 verses of chapter 4. He introduced faithful prayer and the pattern of prayer. We talked about complete joy in chapter one. Talked about where desires come from and lusts come from and humility. And so these concepts of living out our daily life are expanded upon in our passage for today. So breaking down James 4, 1 through 3, first of all, when he's speaking to an audience, he's speaking to an audience of believers. So when we look at his instruction and exhortation, let's primarily be focused on his primary audience first, and that is the church. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? So let's think about that for a minute. There is probably not an adult Christian believer in this church that hasn't been part of a church conflict before. Infighting, quarreling, even if it's over inconsequential things, which most of the time it is, right? What does James say is the source of that infighting? Why are new believers in conflict with one another? In the first century uh, context, there's lots to be in conflict, right? Some of the Jewish believers looked down on some of the Gentile believers because they had not come to Christ in the same way with the same background. James spent a long time talking about the rich and the poor 
In Jerusalem, there is a mix of folks that's coming into his congregation. Those that are wealthy landowners that employ some of the same poor that are coming into the fold of the church. So there's all kinds of, of quarrels and conflicts. And where does that conflict come from? It comes from us seeking out what our own personal desires are our own ego or our, or the ego of a collective group trying to get its ways um, and seeking those things out instead of the will of God. In verse two, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. This really speaks to our lesson about complete joy. If you turn back with me to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we talked about joy's effect, the effect of complete joy as the antidote to lust and the things that happen as a consequence of lust, consequence of lusts. James says in, in 1, 2 through 4, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says in chapter one, where all of this starts is lusts, desires against what God commands us to have. And what is the antidote to where that lust leads us to, to sin and ultimately death? What is the antidote? It is complete joy. This isn't, you know, this isn't Barney the purple dinosaur, you know, happy all the time type of joy. Although we are joyful and happy because of our salvation. This is a joy that is a deep-seated completeness that the Lord gives to us as we walk closely with him. If you're walking closely with the Lord, then you're not tempted to do those things that the Lord says for you not to do. Or if you are tempted by them, you're like, no, I have everything I need in Christ. I don't need any of that. So joy is, and com the completeness of joy and walking in it is the antidote to these lusts. Likewise, chapter one talked about those lusts and where they come from. Um, in 1, 13 through 15, lusts, lead to sin and death. No one is to say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what the devil does. No, no, that's not what it says. Enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, 
it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. This is how important contentedness and complete joy in Christ is in both us individually and congregationally and as universally Christians. This is how important it is to have complete joy in Christ. These lusts are leading to infighting and wars and death and and quarrels inside and outside of the individual believer. And it's all because we're not doing like the song says, trust and obey. Good. That's a good song for us to take home. That's as as Luther said, take home theology, right? Those little songs like that are essential to the daily walk with Christ. Again, a concept in James 1, 5 through 8 is that of prayer and the proper way of praying. He says in 1, 5 through 8, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So James prepared us for chapter 4, as he started with his chapter one, and that is the pattern of James, by the way, if you wanted to make an outline, you could start with chapter one and outline what he says to a lot of the other different parts of the other four chapters that are in James. So we know where lust comes from. We know where these quarrels come from. We know the antidote to those lusts and quarrels and everything that comes after them. And if one antidote wasn't wasn't enough, we also have the antidote of prayer for our sinful conditions. There's two errors about prayers that he points out in the first three verses. The first error in our prayers is that simply we don't pray. What does verse two say? You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. We forego our opportunity to pray about things. We forego our time with the Lord because you name it. We've got an early meeting. We have got to take our kids somewhere for a practice. We've got all kinds of of animals and things to take care of at our house. You name it. We've got so many things that take our attention away uh, from our time with the Lord. One of our errors is that we do not have because we do not ask. 
simply don't spend time in prayer. The other error that James points out in verse three is that perhaps we do pray, but we pray with the wrong motives. So you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your own pleasures. How many times do we really effectively ask the Lord to bring us closer to him and have that at the top of our minds on our prayers? Building out our relationship with the Lord, asking for his help, asking for uh, for him to lead us to service to God's kingdom. All of the things, all of those good works that we talked about in previous chapters that he has for us to do. Do we pray about those or do we have the wrong motives asking for basically an easier life? Guilty as charged. Sometimes we just want the Lord to take the pain away. Just take me out of this circumstance, right? Too much pressure on me. Too too many things going on in my family. Too much grief to bear at the moment. We need to ask with the right motives to serve the Lord, to purify ourselves, and to seek his will for our lives. So before we go any further, I know we typically... We typically will wait until the end to do application, but I wanted to, us to just pause right here and especially make this point from Scripture be absorbed. Have we asked God for our needs, first of all? Are we neglecting prayer? Secondly, have we asked God for things to suit only us? or to simply make our lives easier. Now, Lord, if you can just make my favorite team win on Sunday, all will be good, right? Have we asked for things to only suit us or to simply make our lives easier? Also, are you envious of anyone? Has it caused a conflict? Do you have desires that are unchecked? Um, And are those causing conflicts for you? I think these are some good introspective questions that that we need to to think about and and need to ask ourselves. So let's continue. Uh, James 4, 4 through 10 continues. You adulteresses. You do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we'll continue on looking through verse 10, but four through six has some things for us to unpack. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's a good thing to be called adulteresses. That's 
James uses the language that a prophet would use, doesn't he? Throughout the course of the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel and God's people are called adulteresses or adulterers when they turn their eyes away from him to serve other gods and please themselves. James calls us a pretty provocative name here. Um, if we're falling into the categories that he's identified, adulteresses. The image of the bride and groom is such an important scriptural image and metaphor. It can't be missed. The bride and groom is repeated through the Old and New Testaments as a metaphor for Christ and his people. <clears throat> the church being the bride, the groom being Christ. And all through Danny's study of Revelation, we've already seen some of that metaphor um, and, and will continue to. Marriage and what it symbolizes isn't lost on us. That's why we hold it so sacredly. And when we look at, when we look at here, when we're the bride of Christ and James, James calls us out as adulteresses, he is, he is emphatically stating that we're not following our first love. When we follow after our own desires, it's adultery. It's just like idolatry. It is idolatry to follow after our own desires versus God's. How especially poignant and terrible to be referred to as adulteresses then. If we have all of this metaphor of Christ being the groom who is to be united with his bride, the church. What is the world in these voice in these verses? It is not necessarily the case that every time that we Every time that we see the world, in particular this word, that it is used in a negative sense, but it is quite often used negatively toward, through the New Testament. The word is cosmos. I'm sure we've heard of that one before. Really, we think of cosmos as the world or universe. That's how we kind of have the connotation in the uh, in English, when we see this in scripture, it's used various ways. It's used as the actual universe or the world, worldly affairs, the earth dwellers, Danny, kind of a reference towards um, those worldly affairs and how how the world goes about its business. Um. And a cross-reference for you just to see some variance in how cosmos is used is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, okay? They're referring to the really the, the people um, of the, the world, the universe. Not so much in the negative sense that James is bringing out here, worldly affairs and the way those that don't have Christ conduct themselves so 
we're not to be friends with the world. We're not to be friends with those that Revelation would classify as the earth dwellers, right? We're not to follow after their ways, which is how some of us were before we were saved. We followed after worldly ways. We liked what we liked. We did what we liked. We didn't have any conscience about it. If we did, it wasn't for repentance. It was for just getting caught or being sorry. And so um, when we look at the ways of the world, we're directed by James not to have friendship with those ways, not to have hostility towards God and what we know better in terms of morality and to whom we belong now um paul of course and several places in the new testament it talks about not being a part of this world just a couple of cross references for us romans 12 2 says and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Cannot help but think about the month that we just went through in June, and all of the pride things that we see, and all of the, um, basically, the, the gay agenda the whole celebration of that community telling it to you plainly i i fully believe that that expresses a love for the world that is exactly what this is talking about scripturally it's not talking about that specifically but conceptually it is that very thing that we're noticing in our time right now we're we're supposed to i I live in corporate america if you didn't know and i'm supposed to embrace all of this stuff i I have to i have to be a friend to to this and and um i've not gotten to the point where i've been required to uh notice like different pronouns or for them to control my language in that way. But I feel this all the time at work. This is, this is all the time present. Um, our lifestyles like this and not just, not just the tolerance of those types of lifestyles, but the full on acceptance and praise of those lifestyles. It's very troublesome to me it's very troublesome to all of us who are in that environment 
but we're not to have those friendships with the world. We're not to, to celebrate that. We're not to follow the pattern of Romans chapter one, right? To not only not call it out, but celebrate right along with those that do not love the Lord. Now, James 4, 5 is very tricky. So I want to, I want to present this and what I found um, in looking through different commentaries and looking through different uh, sources. James 4, 5 is a bit tricky because of the rendering of a couple of different, different words. In the NASB, and I believe in the ESV, the spirit in this verse is capitalized. Usually when we see a a capitalized uh, name like that, it belongs to who? God, right? So in the NASB, the capitalization and the indication is that this is the Holy Spirit. Well, it's a little, that's a little bit problematic of a, of a version from what I've looked into. In this case, King James may have a little bit more clear version of this verse, okay? Notice the difference. In King James, it says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So who does the spirit belong to? Man, not God, right? In the KJV verse. Um, that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Basically calling out the human spirit is one of envy and lust. That's pretty clear to me in KJV. What's more diff- what's a more difficult reading to me is verse 5 in NASB and ESV because number 1 the word for jealous here is a word that typically has a negative connotation in scripture. When we typically talk about God and he is jealous for his people, for instance. The word is uh, the word is Z-E-L-O-S, just like zealous, right? This is not the same word that's used here in the Greek in this verse. Um, and if I could pronounce it, I would, but it starts with a P-T-H. Um, and that that word is frequently in a negative connotation of jealousy. So calling out jealousy, calling out envy as being against one of the Ten Commandments, right? So, you know, NASB and ESV are both really good translations. To be honest with you, I just am having a hard time parsing this verse in those two versions. So maybe homework for you, especially those of you that that like to study through scriptural puzzles like this. <laughs> um, let me know. Let me know if you can find a good interpretation of why 
NASB and ESV choose to make the number one jealously here would have to have a positive connotation if spirit is capitalized, right? So all of that to say, and forgive me if I'm being confusing, but all of that to say in verse five, what we can draw from it is that if we read this KJV verse, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. There's really no difficulty in parsing that, right? We, we can even feel that in our own selves. We, we know that we have this flesh that is in constant war with the, uh, the will of God. All right. Um, <clears throat> so enough said on chapter on uh, verse five. If if you can find a difference, or if if I've made an error in the way that I presented verse five, please let me know. I'm very open to listening. Um, any scriptural counterpoints to what I said? Okay. So we continue in James four verse six. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In both of these quotes um, that James is using, uh, he's, he's not nailing down a specific scriptural quote, but instead paraphrasing what scripture says. Okay. So when he says in verse five, when he says in verse five, do you think the scripture says to no purpose? He's saying the counsel of scripture. Okay. Sometimes, a lot of times in the New Testament, people like James will refer directly to an Old Testament quote. It'll be a quote right out of Joel or Amos or one of the prophets um, or even some of the Old Testament history. But here, James instead is saying, do you think the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? So just like that, verse six also has that, although we can more directly see some of the, some of the Old Testament specifically go to this quote, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 29, 23 would be one such verse that's very close. A person's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Psalm 138, 6 also says, for the Lord is exalted, yet he looks after the lowly, but he knows the haughty from afar. And one of the contemporaries or, or one of the people that were around James' time, Matthew, of course, Matthew's gospel contains what Jesus said as he was speaking to the crowd and to the disciples and is very directly linked to this James verse. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And uh, that's Matthew. So how do we come to the Lord? 
Our humility is key, recognizing our low position versus God's high position. And in James 4, 7 through 10, we continue with that. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. (laughs) Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Why are we humbling ourselves? Because God resists the proud, right? But gives grace to the humble. So here are our, here are the practical applications that James is telling us to do. To submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If we belong to God... He's saying, we resist temptation, we resist the devil, and he'll flee. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why are we double-minded? Because we're both trying to satisfy our own will and wants and desires and God's. And we, we want to continue to have this tension of, well, we're not completely going to give uh, all of our time, all of our mind, all of our hearts um, over to the Lord's will. Um, now, does verse nine call for us all to wear black and go around with a mournful face all the time, sad trombone playing in the background. Is that what James is calling us to do in verse nine? No, it probably wouldn't. But why is why is he why is he using this imagery? It's because he's saying we should lament. Be sorrowful about our sin. Not taking pleasure pleasure in it. It's it's not a happy-go-lucky thing to be convicted. When we're convicted of sin, it causes us, I don't know about you, but it causes me a little bit of fear, just the fear of the Lord, a healthy fear. When I'm convicted by something that I read or by something that a pastor says, um uh, and and then you go to him and confess and forsake. So in this way, we should mourn, we should be miserable. If you're happy in your sin, it is likely that you are not saved. A Christian doesn't continue to sin and be pleased with it. It's a battle. Um, Jesse was talking about a battle this morning. It is a battle. The the Christian life is that. Um, If you are convicted of sin and you are, you always feel like you have this conflict and you 
keep on getting pressed on all sides because you're so convicted and you have this cycle of being convicted and repenting, good. Good. It is far better to have a battle with sin than for you to rest in it. And just be happy in in the, the pig pen. So what this is saying is be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Those things that you would ha- get pleasure in while, while spending time with your sin, those are the things to be mournful about and miserable about, that we should be humble um, in the presence of the Lord about. So just to summarize the last part, the last few verses of this, is here's our cure for the things that James has outlined to this point. The cure is to submit to God and resist the devil. Come close to God. If you remember how we started this chapter, one of the things that we neglect is prayer itself, right? We don't have because we don't ask. Come close to God. Come close to him in prayer. Cleanse your hands Purify your hearts. Focusing in on God. Cleansing our hands. Um, not allowing them. This is, this is kind of Levitical language, if you will. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. What did they do before they offered sacrifice? There's a big wash basin, right? Cleanse your hands. In the presence of the Lord and humble yourselves. So in conclusion, James is further applying his principles of Christian living, of walking closely with God. And we should be seeking the completeness in God alone, not in our own lusts and desires, in humble worship in prayer, and a life lived for him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these verses this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of prayer that we may speak to you, Lord, directly. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply your word. Help us to walk with you. Help us to be contented, to have complete joy, not turning aside to those things that benefit only us or those things that are just pleasure or things that are against you or against your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk with you more closely. In Jesus' name we pray.